The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, my time traveling friends. Welcome back to this second episode of 2024 for the Tudor History and Travel Show. This is a special episode, slightly different from the norm, in which I travel into central London to see the Holbein exhibition, which is currently showing at the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham Palace. The exhibition is entitled Holbein at the Tudor Court and is in the midst of its current run. It opened back in November and will be open till early April. And if you're a Tudor lover, then of course Holbein is, without exception, probably the most revered and admired painters of the age. And so to have so many Holbeins together in one place is truly truly thrilling. As you will know, if you are a regular listener to the Tudor History and Travel Show, the thing that we do slightly differently here to many Tudor podcasts is that we love to go on location. And that's exactly what I did. I was lucky enough to go along to the exhibition on a day that it was not open to the public to meet with the head curator of the exhibition, Kate Hurd, and to go on a tour of the exhibition talking about the life of Holbein, his works, and particularly interestingly to me, his methodology and just how he created such incredible realism in his portraits. Because this is a particularly special episode, it is available to everyone. And I just want to remind you, dear listener, that there is, as ever, a show notes page associated with this podcast. So check out the links for that. And of course, any of the other important links that we mention in the podcast, including how to get more information, to buy tickets or to go along and visit the exhibition. So without further ado... I give you, ladies and gentlemen, Holbein at the Tudor Court and its chief curator, Kate Hurd. Welcome, dear listeners. You find me for today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show in the centre of London. In fact, I have come to the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham Palace and specifically to the Holbein Exhibition. Yes, I am very excited and honoured to be making a return trip but this time, we have the gallery to ourselves, with the exception of our guide today, Kate Hurd, who is the exhibition's curator. And Kate's going to be telling us all about Holbein's story and his artwork, his technique, and the beautiful uh, artwork that is on display in the exhibition and how you can visit 
So without further ado, I'd love to bring Kate into the conversation. Hello, Kate. Hello, how are you? Well, very well. It's, it's, it's a beautiful day here in London, if not a little cold, so I'm very happy to have taken shelter here in the, in the gallery. But thank you so much for joining us. Um, you curated the exhibition here. Can you tell us, first of all, before we start talking about Holbein, which, of course, is where we're going to spend most of our time, what does it take to bring together an exhibition like this? Well, you say I curated the exhibition, and that's correct, but it's a whole team of people who bring it together. So there's been a large team at Royal Collection Trust working on this exhibition for the past few years and um, thinking about the conservation of the works, the examination of them, how we might present them within the gallery space, how we might um, do the accompanying book, the accompanying online um, resources. So it's, it's, it's been a really fun project. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm gonna ask a couple of quite naive questions, so please forgive me. Is this all of the Holbein that is within the Royal Collection or did you have to select a selection of to put on display? It's not a naive question. It's a really good question. This isn't all the Holbeins in the Royal Collection. It's all the paintings, all the miniatures, but there are 80 drawings by Holbein in the collection and it's a selection of 42 on display. So um, if people want to know about those others that we couldn't fit onto the walls of the gallery, they, they're all on the website with images and information about them. Okay, fantastic. Well, that scratched a bit of an itch, I have to say. I was wondering. So Tell us about yourself, Kay. What do you do here at the Queen's Gallery? What's your role and, and how did you get involved with this work? So I'm Senior Curator of Prints and Drawings um, with Royal Collection Trust. So I work with that wonderful group of prints and drawings in the Royal Collection. I have a particular interest in the 16th century and in Northern European art. So Holbein is one of the artists who most fascinates me. So I've loved working on the exhibition. Oh, fantastic. Well, um, I share that passion. He is my absolute favourite artist. I, I think he's beyond compare. Um, so it was such a thrill when I saw that you were doing the exhibition. There was no way I wasn't going to be here. And I know already that so many of my followers have been excited and have already been here, actually. And hopefully we can inspire a few more people to, to come here in the next couple of months. Because you open, aren't you, for another, what, three months until April? Until the 14th of April. So the exhibition is open at the gallery um, in London until the 14th of April. Well, we'll remind people all about the visitor information and how they can find out about coming here at the end of our chat. But let's go back to Holbein then. Let's start at the beginning. It's always a good place to start. What was Holbein's origins and how did he come to be such a, a master artist? I think all the answers to that question come from the start. So it's, it, it, Holbein is born in Augsburg, but he comes from a family of artists. So his father is, is a well-respected panel painter. His uncle is an artist. So he came to be such a fantastic artist. And, and you're absolutely right. He is the most exquisite artist. His works are sensational. I think it was just in his blood. He had that innate talent, that innate ability, which he developed through endless work, endless practice. And we see the perfectionist in the walls around us, this man who couldn't stop making things better. So he trained with his father. He went to Basel in Switzerland to set up on his own, to um, start developing his own practice as an artist. He was tremendously successful in Basel, but he clearly had ambition. And so we know that he went to France. We know he got as far as Bourges because he makes drawings in Bourges Cathedral. But we don't know what he was doing in France. 
we assume he was looking for a role at the French court because the French court is is a place where artists are very welcome, artists are celebrated. Um, he clearly wasn't successful. He's back in Basel quite quickly. Um, but after that, he he tries his luck at a court again quite quite soon, and that, that court is the Tudor court. So that's the, the, where Holbein was before he came to London in 1526. Uh, when does he? When do we first hear about him? How old is he when we first start to hear about uh, his talent? It, do, do we know even? Yes. I mean, he starts to make a name for himself in Basel. We assume he arrives there in around 1515. And you start to see works of art that he's created and he's clearly getting patronage. So he's starting to, to make a name for himself at that point. Mm -hmm. So you, you do get the sense of this artist where, where people know he is, is there and they want his works. So he starts to become more and more recorded at that point. And I think it, it, it is his talent that, that creates that success. People are looking at what he's doing. They're looking at the houses he's painting in Basel. They're looking at the portraits he's painting. They're looking at the panel paintings in the churches. And they're clearly respecting him and, and wanting more and more and more. That's interesting, that point you make, actually, because he wasn't just an artist, was he? I mean, I think that's one of the other incredible things about him, because he, he worked in um, gold work, didn't he, as well? He did designs. You said he painted houses as well? He works in all sorts of different areas. Um, this is what a, a painter of his period was expected to do, though. So he wouldn't have specialised as a portrait painter. He was doing what all other painters were doing. He was... Um, as you say, painting houses and these amazing illusionistic facades. He was making designs for metalwork, um, designs for jewellery, beautiful designs in the British Museum. He was designing books. So publishing, publications by Johannes Froben. We have a lovely portrait of Froben in one of the galleries. And Holbein was doing book designs for him. Um, so he's a very versatile artist, but this is the way that he makes his money. It's his bread and butter. He yeah. just does it exquisitely well. Now, my memory is not brilliant. You were talking about the French court. There was an incredible artist at the French court whose name is just ex escaping me and you're going to tell me who it is. All sorts of incredible artists <laughs> at the French court. Leonardo da Vinci had been there to 1519. Joost van Cleve um, is working there. Clouet is That's working there. And it's Clouet who Holbein, we think, is inspired by. So... Um, Clouet is a Flemish artist who goes to work for Francis I. And um, we think that Holbein might have seen his chalk drawings and realised just how successful these were. And started, I mean, Holbein could clearly already work in chalk, but he starts to, to make it a preference. And you can see the results of that on the walls around us. You can. And I should say, I should just be really explicit. I said at the beginning that I was in the Queen's Gallery. I literally am in the Queen's Gallery. And Kate and I are surrounded by Holbein's as we speak. And I'd also like to say, dear listeners, that as ever, there will be a show notes page and we'll be putting up some images uh, that have kindly been shared with us. So perhaps you can see about some of the things that we're talking about to ignite the imagination even more. But it is quite, it is quite something, isn't it, to be standing here with all these eyes of the Tudor court upon us. Yeah, we're standing in the Tudor court. Yeah, I mean, there's Thomas More behind me. There's Thomas Wyatt in front of me. Um, yeah. William Reskimer, you know, not a household name, but he was at court as well. Yeah, so quite something. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I digress. 
you were talking about Clouet, and yes, I can see. I mean, Clouet is very similar, isn't he, in style? So I can see the connection between. It's really interesting to know that perhaps actually Clouet inspired Holbein as part of his artistic journey. Yeah, and we have a Clouet miniature in the exhibition, so people can see an example of Clouet's work as well as examples of Holbein's work. Ah, brilliant. And maybe we could come back towards the end and just talk about room by room what you, what you have in the rooms. That would be really interesting. So he's ambitious. He's failed at the French court. He gets his eyes set on England. Is there an introduction or does he just sort of jump on a boat and land in England and just start from scratch? He has an introduction. Um, yeah, I'm sure he started from scratch as well, but he has an introduction. And this is where the book designs become very important. The book designs he's done in Basel were um, for the publisher Froben, who was the publisher of Erasmus, the great European thinker, the very successful author. And um, Erasmus at that point is living in Basel. So Erasmus provides Holbein with letters of introduction. And one of those is to Sir Thomas More, who is the great courtier in London, the great friend of Henry VIII at that point. And so we think, we don't have the exact letter, but we think that Erasmus, or sorry, Holbein comes to London with this letter for Thomas More. We know that More writes back to Erasmus pretty soon after and says, your painter is a wonderful artist. Oh, fantastic. So we know More's reaction. It's, it's a pretty good introduction, really, isn't it? If you're going to have an introduction to, to Thomas More's not a bad start. It's not, but Holbein really makes a success of it immediately. Yeah. So in the exhibition, we've got those wonderful drawings of Thomas More's family. We've got that wonderful drawing of Thomas More himself, but we also have drawing and painting of Henry Guilford and a drawing of William Warham, who are other senior figures in the country who Holbein is painting within a few years of his arrival. Yeah. Now, whether he's got that introduction through More or through Erasmus, he really has got the top patrons interested in him from the moment of his arrival. And do we know that the Moore family were the first family he painted? Do we have evidence of that? We assume that Moore was his first patron um, because of that letter, because of the early commissions from Moore, the commission for the family group and the commission for the, the single portrait, which is now in the Frick collection in New York. So we assume that Moore is going to be his early patron. And later in that letter to Erasmus, Moore says that he will try to help Holbein as much as possible in establishing himself in England. So this also indicates that he's an early patron. Yeah. But um, some of those early works, we don't know a lot about Holbein's life immediately after he arrived. Right, okay. So, so do we know, for example, if he was married or did he bring a wife with him? Did he marry an English woman? Where did he live? Those kind of very domestic questions that perhaps get, you know, we pass those by when we're concentrating on this fabulous art. We do know the answers to some of those questions. Okay. We know that he had a wife and children in Basel. His wife was called Elspeth. And there is the most beautiful painting that he makes of her and two of his children still in Basel. <gasps> it's, it's one of his most exquisite works. Um, we don't know where he lived and worked in London for the majority of his career until 1541 when he's recorded in, a, in a, um, an official document. Um, we know he had a second family in London by the time of his death from his will, which leaves money for two young children in London. And he asked that all his goods be sold to support those two young children. They're still with a nurse, so they must be very, very young. Right. But they're separate from the family, which he leaves in Basel, and, and Elspeth never travels to England with him. Okay. Wow. 
that's it. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to think about. That's quite a complicated personal life, really. Well, it is complicated. <laughs> he, for the first few years, he's he's. It's, it's uncertain whether he's intending to stay in England. He goes back to Basel in 1526, but he clearly commits to England from the 1530s when he comes back. And I, I, I so at that point, he does return to Basel, but. I think he's he's then seeing himself as 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 an artist working at the Tudor court. Yeah. Now, one of the, you mentioned Thomas More, and I think one of the things that I really enjoyed when I came here was the fact, and tell me if I'm wrong, that More's portrait or, or um, pencil drawing is the one that shows us the the like pin work, which gives us starts to give us an intro into his uh, technique, isn't it? Is that right? You're absolutely right. It's really fascinating. That work we've displayed in the centre of the gallery so you can walk around it and see both sides. And this is the only drawing by Holbein in the collection that he used a transfer method known as pricking. So he made his chalk drawing and then he took a pin and he put his chalk drawing on a second sheet of paper and he pushed a pin to make holes through both sheets of paper along the lines he wanted to transfer onto his panel. Then he's got two sheets of paper. He's got one with his drawing on and he's got one which is just an outline of holes. And he puts that second outline of holes onto his panel. He uses charcoal or chalk dust to rub through the holes. And then he's got essentially a join the dots on the panel. Now with Holbein, it's never just a join the dots. Mm. He keeps working. He keeps refining his image. There's nothing unusual about this. This was a common way for artists to transfer an image to a panel. Um, but it's wonderful, as you say, to be able to see it. And because it's double-sided, you can look through the holes that Holbein made yeah. in the in the um, in the sheet of paper. I, I think it's incredible. I, I absolutely love that. I think that was my one of my favourite, if not me, my favourite thing, because I learned something. I really did. But this has led us into talking about Holbein's sort of technique and style. Is there a name that we give to Holbein's style as a whole? I think he's very hard to pin down. I mean, he's very, we talk about Renaissance artists and we think about artists who bring this idea of um, classical motifs and, and various other things. And Holbein certainly fits in that mould, but he also comes from the medieval tradition. He comes from the tradition of painting in the way that his father's taught him to paint. I think he's, he's really hard to pin down. Um, for me, the most notable thing about his work and I think notable also for contemporaries, was not only his fantastic skill, was his ability to make his sitters appear lifelike. And we know that he was praised for this in, in his own time. And you can see, I mean, we can see exactly what his 16th century audience could see. We can see the fantastic, fantastic skill that he had. Yeah. What is it about his style, do you think, that, that animates them so much? What does the art world have to say about describing that? I think if you look closely at these, it's his facility with the media that he's using. So he is a master of chalk and he's a master of a paint and he's, he's master with the pen and ink. And we'll look closely at things later and we can see how that works. Should we, should we, do we need to do that now? Or we can it, absolutely let's do, go that do that now. That now. Yeah. So, dear listeners, we are on wooden floors, so... And I've got heels on today, so you'll hear a bit of clip, 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 clip as we make our way. Where could we go? Who could we go and visit to, to, to display what you're going to talk to us about, about the technique? Let's go meet Mistress Sush. OK, let's go and see.
Mistress Sush. Now, the wonderful thing about Mistress Sush is we don't know who she was. There are a number of ladies called Mistress Sush at court. But if you look at this, you can see just what a fantastic use of medium it is. And Holbein's painted the paper pink, or someone's painted the paper pink. We assume it's Holbein to give that flesh tone. Uh -huh. And you can see the different coloured chalks he's used. So there's a yellow, there's a black, there's a brown, there's this incredible salmony pink. Mm. And he has built that chalk up in layers to create the texture of her hair. He's smudged the chalk on her bodice to create the texture of velvet, and he's written on it, black velvet, that's Holbein's writing, to record <gasps> for himself that that's a velvet bodice she's wearing. Awesome. He's shaded her face to give the modelling, but then he's taken a pen and ink and he's just drawn lines like the line of yes. her lips and to catch her nostrils and her nose and to catch the eyelashes of her, of her eyes. So he's brought those features out slightly more and then he's taken just a touch of blue watercolour and he's just added that to the eyes. So he uses everything at his disposal and he builds up layers and layers very gently and very carefully and sort of brings this figure out of the paper. Yeah. I, I, she, I, she's beautiful. I've actually got a copy of her over my bed. Oh, fantastic. She is really she's, wonderful. She's isn't one of my she? favourites. Yes. So it's yes. wonderful <laughs> that you've picked her out. Uh, that's fantastic. Those features, I love the way you describe the use of the pen to pick out the lips and the nostrils because those features, and for me, the eyes, he just does incredible things with eyes. Is there another portrait maybe that you can think of where the eyes are particularly captivating? Absolutely. All of the eyes are captivating. Um, a really good example of Holbein's eyes is the Duchess of Suffolk. Okay. So this is Catherine Willoughby, isn't it? This is Catherine Willoughby. Okay. Catherine Brandon, her married name, Duchess of Suffolk, yes. um, and the fourth wife of Charles Brandon. Now, you can see these eyes are very different. Um, Holbein's worked them up very much more um, sort of boldly. Um, he's used a lot more ink on this. She's facing a different way. Mm. Mistress Sush is facing us. Um, the Duchess of Suffolk is looking out. But he's used that wonderful brown um, on her eyes. But he's struggled. If you look at the iris of her left eye, yes. he's struggled with it. And he's done it again and again and scratched it with a pen. Uh -huh. So you, you see him really trying to get what he wants. Yes. You absolutely see him trying to catch what he wants. Um, but every single eye is different. So he, it's, it's not that he has a way that he does eyes and he just does them. Every single eye is tailored to his sitter's eye and how he wants to catch that eye. And I'm just also looking, it's every little eyelash, isn't it? Every little eyebrow, the detail is fantastic. It's incredible. We've got um, a couple of rooms in the exhibition in which we look at the ways that the conservation team have assessed and analysed the drawings. And you'll see in there some of the eyes Holbein drew under magnification. Ah. And you can see those individual strokes. Yes. Um, and the way that he defined the lower lid just through using the strokes of the eyelashes. Yes. It's yes. tiny, tiny work um, with the brush or the pen. He's, he's really, really good. And while we're here and looking mm. at Catherine, I can see on the headband of her hood, he's, he's started just to sketch in the design. I just presume to just give him a, an idea of what it was like, as, as you see, don't you, with bits of jewellery and so on. Yeah. It's wonderful, isn't it? 
he's only sketching, as you say, just a little bit of the pattern, which yeah. reminds us that these are working drawings. They're not meant to be framed and hung on the wall as finished works of art. These are <laughs> studies of sitters for portraits. So here he has just drawn in a few of the patterns from the band on her on her hood. And he's also written in very tiny yes. writing above it, rot, to remind himself that that bit is red. So that's the German for red. Yes. Um, so he, these are all there to remind him, to give him a guide when he's he's creating the finished portrait. While we, before we move away and maybe look at another um, painting, you mentioned about the orientation of the sitter. Mm. And I noticed, for example, there's one next to us of a gentleman. He's completely side on. We've got um, the Duchess of Suffolk here is half on. We've got Mary Zouche, who was head on. Do we have any idea about why people chose to be portrayed the way they were. We've got no firm information, but there's a lot of clues you can take from the works of art themselves. The gentleman you've referred to on the right mm. there, um, this is a marriage portrait. And so it, it may be a pair with another portrait, which is why he's looking to one side. <laughs> you can see the finished painting is in Frankfurt. That's currently on display in their Holbein exhibition. You can see the picture on the label there. He's, he's holding a flower. Mm. So it's a carnation. It may well be a marriage portrait. If we look at the... Um, portraits of Henry Howard, the two drawings of Henry Howard in the next gallery. One of those Holbein has started and then abandoned. Shall we go and look at that? Let's do that. Let's do yeah. that. Show me, show me. Yes. Are we this way? We're this way. awesome to see Henry VIII's armour. Isn't it fantastic? It's, yes. He's like <laughs> welcoming him to court. Get a sense of the bulk of Henry VIII. You do, don't you? Right, okay, so we've come into the, the third room actually in the exhibition, haven't we? And we are facing, tell us about the two pictures that we're seeing here. So these two portraits of Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, um, who was the son of the Duke of Norfolk, were made probably on the same day at the same time by Holbein. And one of them he's abandoned. So you can see this portrait where Howard looks to the left um, and Holbein has very sketchily delineated his clothes. He's coloured the hair in very basically, just sort of scribbled brown chalk mm. into the hair without any sense of, mm. of form or delineation. And he seems then to have stopped. So this is a Holbein drawing partially completed. And he made the drawing again, changing Howard's pose, changing Surrey's pose, showing him facing the front. Mm. And he's done that same delineation of, of um, dress and he's done that same colour underneath the hair, but then he's taken black chalk and he's drawn the lines of the hair to really make it, give it texture and a, and a form. So this is the drawing that he's worked up and completed. And the only real difference between the two is the pose. Mm. So the only thing I can think is that the pose in the first was unsatisfactory. And when you compare the two, it works so much better as a, as a, 
as a yeah. portrait facing forwards. Yeah. So we don't know why Holbein posed his sitters in many ways while he did why he did, but in this case it looks as if he started and it wasn't working so he started again. It's interesting. I'm I'm fascinated by that. I'd love to know the answers. Because for example, um Mistress Zouche or Mary Zouche, whoever we think she is, you know, she, she's a little petite thing, but she's got she's so dominant in her stare. It really um it really interests me as to, but she's actually off, isn't she? She's looking slightly to the side, but, but but she's facing straight on. And I just find it really fascinating, this orientation. Who chose? Was it, was it Holbein? Because he started and thought, actually, this is your best side or best angle. Or, or did the sitter have something to say about it? Um, for example, you know, we were just looking at the Mistress Zouche or Mary Zouche and she's facing forward. Although she's quite demurely actually looking to the side, she's still kind of, there's a sense of, here I am about that portrait. I'd love to know. Wouldn't it be? I mean, to be a fly on the wall in those conversations where Holbein's working out what he's going to do. And there's one drawing of a man called Nicholas Points, um, which is on the wall behind us. We can have let's a look have at look that at, if you let's, want. Let's see Nicholas. Now, you can see Nicholas Points is in profile, yes. like um, George Cornwall. And this appears, it's been suggested, and I think very plausibly, that this refers to classical precedents to medals and coins. If you look at Points' seal, it's a little intaglio of a classical hero wearing a Roman-style helmet. And Points is sort of putting himself in that world. He, we know he was a patron of Renaissance art. He had at his house of Iron Acton um, sort of um, Renaissance-style motifs on the walls. And he's, he's placing himself beautifully there by the pose in the portrait. So you can imagine points asking for that. Yeah, lots of different reasons. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I'd love to actually, one of the, uh, you've got two rooms that really go into the detail about the technique. We've touched on a little bit. Mm. But I'd love to go into those rooms and maybe really dive deep and unpack all the different layers of his detail and how he created the final Version. Can we do that? Let's do that. Okay, yeah. let's go over then. You've brought me into the first of these rooms, which I remember well. Um, by the way, there's a little bit of background noise going on, so I hope, dear listeners, that doesn't interfere with our conversation. But it's really important that we come in here because you've got these, you've got these series of pictures that are, are close-ups which break down the different elements. And I really wanted to come in here. And you've also got a cabinet with what looks like pigments and so on. So I actually wanted to come in here so that we could talk while we look at them. So I hope, folks, the, the noise in the background won't be distracting. So where are you going to take me first, then, Kate, to start? to take me on the journey, Holbein's journey. Well, if we start here in the left-hand corner, okay. um, the room is arranged that you can walk around it and follow Holbein making a work of art. Brilliant. So we look at his different techniques and the different things he did to put together a work of art, and we start with drawing. Um, and what you have in front of us here is this case with examples of the natural chalks he was using, how he put together his watercolours, how he created textures with those chalks by drawing, by stumping, which is smudging with a, with a leather coil, um, the different materials he'd have used. Um, 
the case has been put together by the paper conservators who've also done this absolutely wonderful example of the different tones mm-hmm. you can get by mixing different pigments for those pink papers. So you'll see, if you look around the exhibition, um, the different pinks that Holbein mm-hmm. has on his papers. And you can see this amazingly, almost like a paint colour chart, <laughs> showing <laughs> the different ways that those colours have been created. So this is the the sort of building blocks of Holbein's Holbein's work. Yeah, it's wonderful. Are there any particularly expensive pigments that he would have worked with? He does use a number of expensive pigments. He uses azurite. Um, he also uses gold quite a lot. Yeah. When we get around to the miniatures, we'll see him using gold. But um, things, I mean, they would have varied. You see the chalks here are just chalks that would have been dug out of the ground. Yeah. They've not been coloured in any way. So when you see those different colours, those are the natural, natural colours for the chalk. But Holbein uses all of these these materials in, in quite incredible ways. And that's what the pictures on the wall show you, because these are close-up magnified details mm-hmm. of different drawings. So you can see here for Lady Ratcliffe how he's layered up different chalks to create the tones of her necklace. He's used a yellow chalk and then a very sharp red chalk on top of that to create that warmth of gold. Mm-hmm. And then here, the different colours in Mary Shelton's headdress. And really wonderfully here, the number of different colours there in William Breskimer's beard. (laughs) So Holbein's building up this wonderful red beard. I don't know if if people know the picture, but Breskimer has this fantastic long red beard. And Holbein's built it up with browns and reds and yellows and on top of that blacks to create that sense of individual hairs. And it's the most exquisite um, piece of drawing. And to see it blown up this size to really be able to see it. And we'll put that in the show notes. So hopefully people, folks, you can nip on over to the show notes page, don't forget, and see some of these pictures that we're talking about. And we've got some in detail. We've talked a bit about eyes already, haven't we? Is there anything else we need to say? I see some more, I see some more um, writing. What yes. are the common things he writes? We've seen root for red. Uh, what, are, what are some of the other common things you find on his? A whole, a whole mind's recording with his writing what he can't record with his brush and his chalk. So he will tend to record colours and textures. Colours if he doesn't have the colour. So what you see over on the right there, this is William Parr and it says Burpore Felbert, purple velvet. Okay. So the quickest way for him to record both the colour and the texture is to write that down. Yeah. And it's an approximation of English, which is rather wonderful. So <laughs> this German artist is coming and, and, and learning English. Wonderfully on the portrait of Richard Southwell, he writes in German, the eyes are a little yellowish. So he can't, clearly can't quite pull that out in his drawing, but he absolutely wants to record it. Yeah. So this tends to be what he's recording, things that, that he needs for the finished portrait painting. Okay. What else do we need to look at in here? Well, here we move on to the idea of painting on panel. So mm. you start to look at, once he's got that drawing, how he moves through to the panel. This wonderful reconstruction by a colleague in paintings conservation of the unknown German merchant taking the layers. So you can see the bare oak panel there and yeah. built up with a chalk preparation, then a pink preparation that he used underneath the paintings as much as the drawings. And you can see then those layers built up more and more and more to create that that finished painting. And then again, you see close up details of painted eyes because his painted eyes are as wonderful as his drawn eyes. So you can see the way he's, he's just caught actually here, just the tiny bit of red to catch the red of the inside of the lids. Um, he's 
he's masterful with the brush. So you can see here again the unknown merchant, just the way he's created those hairs to give his hair a fuzz, how he's dragged the brush to create the fur on the Duke of Norfolk. And here, this wonderful close-up of the vine, um, again from the back of William Reskimer, who has the long beard. Uh -huh. He's done what's known as painting wet in wet, where he's mixed the paints on the panel. So he's used two different wet paints and has, has exploited that merging of the colours as they mix together to create the tones of the vine. He uses gold. This is a wonderful close-up oh, of Henry yes. Guildford's sleeve. And you can see how he's caught the fabric um, the light catching the cloth of gold fabric. And this wonderful blown up close up shows you how he did it by creating lines of gold that are of different density. So he really is a master with, with his materials. That's, That's, you know, looking at his material shows you just how good he is. So another basic question that comes to mind, the, the drawings would have been captured in front of the sitter. Then he takes them away back to his workshop to do the final oil painting, if that's what's... And I presume all of those drawings were intended to be oil paintings, were they? We assume that all of the drawings, with the exception of the one of John Godsalve, um, were made with finished works of art in mind. Some of them might have been miniatures, some of them would have been panel paintings. Not all of those survive. Mm. So we only presume that there were finished works of art. We think that the drawings were made in front of sitters. That seems pretty certain because the way Holbein captures what's in front of him and what is clearly in front of him what Holbein did after the sitting is interesting. He uses those drawings as models for the paintings and he sometimes transfers them directly onto the panel. And we saw that with Thomas More and the holes in Thomas yeah. More. Um, he seems then to have retained the drawings as some sort of record, perhaps um, as a record for the appearance of the sitter if he needed to make more paintings. But he will, once he's transferred the outlines of the drawing onto the panel, he'll keep the drawing next to him to take those those details he's recorded, such as the texture and the colour. So if it's purple velvet on William Parr, he's got the drawing to tell him that. Yeah, um, yeah the drawings were important working tools for him. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I just wonder how much of Holbein's work has actually been lost over time. I think probably quite a significant amount of work has been lost. We know that there, there must have been more drawings, studies for the sitter's hands, for example, only a couple of those survived, but there were clearly lots of them. There are paintings that don't have associated drawings. There are drawings that don't have associated paintings. So there's a lot loss in both areas. So um, there's clearly a lot that we don't know. That said, what does survive shows how busy he was. Yeah. So if there was even more, he must have been even busier. He's, he's clearly a yeah. very successful artist. Clearly he is.
heading into the, the second room here? Yes. Yeah, the second room, because your exhibition of how Holbein works continues in here. There we go. Now, what's going on in here as compared to the other room, Kate? This room looks at how we have used um, technical analysis to understand Holbein's work. The previous room looked at Holbein's materials, how he put his works together. This really looks at how we look at Holbein. Right. So what you have on the first wall here is an analysis of the way he transferred his drawings to panel, both through that pricking technique and also through tracing over the lines. And you can see a reconstruction of his technique. Um, you can see close-ups showing those blind lines that, that, that appear um, stylus lines on the mm, works mm. where he's traced over um, so that gives you a sense of how the drawings and the paintings work together yes behind you this wonderful research that was undertaken into Derek Bourne um, the painting that closes the exhibition um, which was a magnificent project undertaken in collaboration between the Paintings Conservation Studio, um, Royal Collection Trust and the Getty Conservation Institute in Los Angeles and the latest imaging techniques that, that, that were available at the Getty were used to look beneath the surface of the paint um, of Derek Bourne. And if you look here, you can see what was revealed when, yes. when they looked. Derek Bourne's face changes quite considerably. Oh, yes, it does, doesn't it? And Holbein has worked again and again and again to yeah. refine Derek's face down. And it's to much create, more chiselled, isn't it? To create that sculpted outline. And yeah. you can see here through the close-ups how he did it, those lines ah. changing and changing and changing. So this wonderful sort of examination of Derek Bourne that was undertaken in um, sort of in step with the conservation of the painting, the removal of later overpaint, revealing Holbein's original paint underneath. So that's really been exciting to see. And finally, we've, we've talked again and again about eyes, eyes and <laughs> rightly so, but yes. here are more of Holbein's eyes. <laughs> yeah. And you can just see how different they are. You can see Thomas Elliot at lower left has got a completely different yes. texture to um, Thomas Lestrange, who's, who's centre center right. Every single eye is completely different. Mm. Totally. It's wonderful. The eyes have it, as they say. They don't certainly do. do. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is perhaps just pick up Holbein's story again. So we have him in England. He's flourishing. He's busy. It would just be nice to finish that story. So perhaps we could go back into the main gallery and, and, and talk a little bit about that. back into one of the main gallery rooms just to, to finish off the story of Holbein's life. So he comes to England twice, is that right? Two main periods. Can you just tell us a little bit of, of, about that? 
Yes, he comes in 1526. He works here till 1528. And that's when his patrons are people like Thomas More, Henry Guilford, William Warham. He then goes back to Basel for a bit and continues to work in Basel. But in 1532, he returns to England. I think, again, it was that sense of opportunity that, that, that the Tudor court provided. And from 1532 until his death in 1543, although he travels back to continental Europe, he is based in England and his career goes from strength to strength. So we can see simply from the commissions that that the rate of commissions is gathering pace, that he's getting more and more people interested in commissioning a portrait from him. And at some point before November 1536, and we don't have the document that records it, um, he's appointed King's Painter, which is the highest post that an artist can achieve in the country. He's not the only King's Painter, but it gives him a salary. So he doesn't have to sell a work of art to earn money. He gets a regular salary. He is given a livery. He carries out work for Henry VIII, famously the Lost Whitehall Mural, Mm. that amazing image of Henry VIII that we all think of. And we've got a a copy of that before it it was destroyed in the fire in the exhibition. Yes, thank you. thanks to Charles II who commissioned oh, well, it. Oh, there you go. Um, he made portraits of Henry VIII's wives. We've got Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour on display, but a lady who may be Catherine Howard. That's a disputed, we're not certain who she is. Portraits of, of Mary and Edward. So he does a lot of work for, for the royal family as mm. King's painter. Mm. But he dies in 1543, apparently very suddenly. He makes a very short will which is, um, it seems to be made unexpectedly. And he was dead at some point in, in um, autumn 1543. So the end, whatever it was, whether it was an acute infection, we don't know, do we? It's been um, suggested it might have been the plague, but, you know, there is no record. It's yeah. simply that it was sudden and there was plague around at that point. And where is he buried? He's buried, well, he must be buried somewhere in London. He must be. Um, <laughs> we know that in 1541, he was living in Oldgate. Um, so he is... Is, is, is we finally got a location for him, which we don't have before. Oh, that's brilliant. But we have no record. We have no record at all beyond that will, which is very short. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> now, you mentioned the Whitehall mural. Before you said that, I was about to ask you, actually, which do you think was the most significant painting that Holbein did for the Tudor dynasty? For the, for the, and maybe that's it. Um, I don't know, is it? Or is there a different one that you would pull out? I think for the Tudor dynasty, you're absolutely right. It's the Whitehall mural because the Tudor dynasty is what that is all about. It is that celebration of the Tudors as a secure, powerful family who rule the country without dispute. So it shows Henry VII and Elizabeth of York and it shows Henry VIII and Jane Seymour. There's a plinth between them that celebrates the Tudor dynasty. It's got verses on it that says how that say how wonderful Henry VII is, how even better Henry VIII is. And we know something of the impact of that mural. It's a real pity it doesn't survive because it would be amazing to see Holbein working at that scale. The cartoon for it's in the National Portrait Gallery, so people can see Holbein's preparatory drawing for one side of it. But we know in the 17th century that people described being frightened by it and shocked because it was so lifelike, it was so imposing. And we passed that suit of armour earlier and that sense that um, Henry was a, a really larger-than-life character. He was very imposing physically and he used that to great effect. And the Whitehall mural is Holbein using that to great effect. That is the way that we see Henry. Yeah, amazing. I'm trying to remember where in Whitehall. Was it in the presence chamber? Can you remember? It was in the privy chamber, Privy chamber, right. Yeah. yeah, OK. So, yeah, so anybody who got 
past the public apartments, got into that first chamber, there was the Tudor dynasty on the wall. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So if that painting was the most significant for the dynasty, today, as kind of art historians, what is considered to be the finest Holbein painting? I think... And I'm not sitting on the fence, but I think that's an almost impossible question to answer. Because Holbein is such a perfectionist, every single one of his paintings, all of his drawings reach that really high point. They, they give us so much information about him as an artist, but each of them is him striving for perfection. So there are, I mean, there are wonderful, all of them are wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, I... <laughs> I think it's almost impossible to say that, that one is greater than the other because he just, in all of his works, you see him trying again and again and again and again to get it as good as he can. And he succeeded because he was that good. Yeah, utter perfectionist it, by the sounds absolutely. of it. Yeah. A real, real true master of his art. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to let you get away with that, but I'm not going to let you get away with this question, <laughs> which is what is your favourite Holbein? <laughs> I, I find that the hardest question I'm asked. Um, yes. I had to make a selection for the exhibition. Yes. Um, you asked if this was everything and it's not. So in some senses, everything on the wall of the galleries, certainly in terms of the drawings, has been selected because I thought it was fantastic. Um, I've, I've got so many favourites, um, but maybe I could tell you about Mary Shelton, who's go on. on our poster. You Let's go. Have a look? Let's go. So she's on the, the end wall here. Okay. She's much the strongest drawings in the exhibition, just in terms of physical yeah. presence. And you, you, you'll remember she's on our poster as well. Yes, of course. Um, she really does have a presence about her. Um, it's a wonderful piece of drawing by Holbein. You can see that he's used chalk, but he's used white paint and black paint and pen and ink and watercolour for her eyes just to capture this this you know appearance um you can see he's painted her headdress black which has captured the black velvet if you look really closely he's used lots and lots of pen and ink around her nose so he hasn't just drawn lines he's hatched mm. and he's spent a lot of time on this drawing some of the drawings here are very quick some of the drawings are very very labor intensive how do you know that how do you know that? you can look at the number of lines you can see how quickly he's moved his chalk um, and that might be because a sitter said you've got 10 minutes and another sitter said you've got three hours. We don't know. But with Mary Shelton, you get the sense that Holbein has looked at her really, really closely. And she's a very compelling figure. She is Anne Boleyn's cousin. She is one of the collectors who formed the Devonshire Manuscript, yes. which is how we know Thomas Wyatt's poetry. She was a great friend of Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, um, such a good friend that when he was arrested for treason, Richard Southwell had her interrogated. Um, I find it fascinating. She was engaged to Surrey's esquire, a man called Thomas Clear, who died saving Surrey's life at the Siege of Montreuil. So she lost him, but she was one of his executors. And if you search for her in the archives, you find her defending his legacy, going to court to, to defend you know, his goods and his property. And you get a sense of this really sparky character, this really determined person. Um, in the Devonshire manuscript, um, she and her colleagues, Margaret Douglas and um, Mary, Duchess of Richmond and Somerset, mm -hmm. didn't just write the poems down, didn't just record the poems, they commented on them. 
And there's a lovely love poem to Mary Shelton, someone who just says, I just wait for her to love me. And Mary Shelton has written underneath basically saying, I'll do what I want. So <laughs> you get a sense that she was a really strong character. And then you go back to how much time Holbein spent on the work and how compelled he's been to look closely to really record her appearance. And, and I wonder if he was rather struck by her, her strength of character too. Oh. So this is one of my favourites in the exhibition. I will say one of because they're all fantastic. But this is one of my favourites just for its beauty as a work of art, but um, as its wonderful record of, of Mary Shelton. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I have to say, since you brought me here, again, I'm drawn by the eyes. She's looking slightly upwards. And I keep thinking, what are you looking at? It's just really... You do. <laughs> just really, really want to know what's going on. You do. You get the sense that she's been asked to, to, to hold still. Yeah. She's got that face where you, you yes. know, you're asked to stay oh, still for a photograph. Yes. But she is looking at something, isn't she? Yeah. She's looking at something in the distance. Yeah. I don't know. She's fixed her, her, her eyes on, on something out of a window. She's... She's looking at something on the wall oh. or she's thinking about something. She's thinking about the poetry that she's yeah. encountering. I'm sort of taken back in time. It's incredible. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for, for being brave enough to share your favourite because it is a pretty difficult choice, let's face it. So um, I think we're coming to the end of our chat. Um, but of course, um, I'd like to um, cover the information about how people can get here and, and to reiterate when the exhibition is open to. So what would you like to tell us about that, Kate? I think the key thing is to look at our website. Um, Royal Collection Trust website will give people information on opening times and days, how to buy tickets. I would say if you buy your ticket through the website, bring it to the gallery, get it converted to a one-year pass, because that means you can come back for a year, you can come and see Holbein as much as you want, you can come and see the next exhibition as well, which is going to be fantastic. So do um, come, get, you know, look at the website and get all that information. Also, I'd suggest people explore the website for more information about Holbein, the drawings in the collection, for the other drawings that aren't on display. And I'd also say the exhibition closes on the 14th of April. So people have plenty of time to come and have a look. They still do. Absolutely. Are you open every day of the week? though? Every day except Tuesday and Wednesday. Right. So okay. Thursday through to Monday. Okay, it's just, just so that yeah. people are really yeah. super aware of that and don't think, you know what, I'll just pop in the car and drive down and it's a Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would urge people to check the website yeah. before they travel just in case there's there's a, a closure for some reason. But that all that information about opening days will be Great. on the website. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being our host and for taking us deep, deep, deep into the world of Holbein. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope our listeners have too. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I found that completely fascinating and it is a huge and hearty thank you to Kate for taking the time to show us around the exhibition and to share her knowledge with us. I'd also like to give a big shout out to the press department at the Royal Collection and particularly Katrina, who was responsible for making this visit happen. Thank you, ladies, and thank you to the Royal Collection Trust. So once again, if you need any of the links that we talked about in the podcast, just make sure you check out the description associated with it and you should have all the information at your fingertip. So that's it for this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. I look forward to being here with you again next month when we will bring you more Tudor tales from the road. Until then, my friends, take care and I'll see you on the road again soon.
you for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. Happy time travelling.